0: either one. And then the Lamb connection is. Christ is called the Lamb many times in Scripture. But don't forget the book of Revelation. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So the Lion and Lamb are really combined as one. And there will be perfect peace there. And really that's what this is all about. I hope that you have found how far we've gotten so far in the book of Isaiah to be both correctional and inspirational I think it does God and I think it does Isaiah and all of us a disservice if we only go through and pick out Isaiah or parts of Isaiah 11 and perhaps Isaiah 35 about the desert blooming as a rose and maybe Isaiah 30, 21, where it says, you'll see your teachers. We pick out a few of those things that are uh, exciting, encouraging, and inspirational for us. But at the same time, we don't go through the whole story. It's easy to see where we would like to be. It's easy to focus on the blessing only. And certainly, Without lack of vision, God's people perish. So we should be looking forward. But it really does no good to look forward if you're not prepared to do what it does takes to arrive where you're looking. You can leave here without a road map and perhaps not knowing the highways, trying to go home and become very, very lost. Now you might have a mental picture of your house and your lawn and your garage in your mind, but if you don't do what is required to arrive there, we'll never get there. So what good did the picture do except make you homesick? And I believe that that is very true of this book and, of course, really of all the prophecies. It's wonderful to keep the vision in mind. But God says, as we heard this morning, that we will all be judged according to our works. Now that's diametrically opposed to the most Protestant teaching that says it's by grace alone. But there's no place in the Bible that says it's merely by grace. Paul said, show me your faith and I'll show you my faith by my works. And we will be judged according to our works. There are many, many scriptures which say that, that the Protestants simply overlook and pay no attention to. So they think that obedience is not necessary. Then why does it talk about obedience to God, his laws, his statutes, his ordinances, his commandments, all the way through here? And why did Christ tell the young rich man who says, what do I need to do to enter the kingdom? Why did he tell him to start keeping the Ten Commandments? Of course, the youngest man thought that he had been keeping the commandments, and Christ proved the lie for that very quickly by saying, "Well, all right, then, give all you have to the poor." As you could see the man was very covetous, breaking the tenth commandment, and that's New Testament teaching. That's not Old Testament teaching. Not only that, but all the other apostles, or the apostles to come. well, Christ is an apostle too? It says so. The other apostles is correct. Uh, the other apostles continued that teaching throughout. And why is it? Right at the end of the book of Revelation, which was also read this morning, he starts naming those things that will keep you out of the kingdom, and they all have to do with the commandments. So the parting shot of the Bible is keep the commandments. So it is necessary that we obey and serve God according to his word and we are told to live by every word of God and bring every thought into the captivity of Christ now I may have yelled a little bit but I just gave you as much correction as I possibly can in that one simple statement bring every thought into the captivity of Christ that corrects our course considerably doesn't it? if you look upon correction as guidance and giving direction too. So, these parts of Isaiah that start out very corrective are very important if we are to arrive at the parts that we like that talk about blessing. God would not want to promise you something without telling you how to get there, what it's going to take. That's why when we're baptized, he tells us to count the cost ahead of time. You don't get baptized without counting the cost, or you certainly should not, and some do not, and therefore they fall away. Even as Paul said, after he had preached to others, he could himself become a castaway, which explodes another Protestant theory, that once saved, always saved, because it's very clear that we have to endure to the end to be saved. All right, with that thought in mind, let's continue uh, in the book of Isaiah. We finished chapter 26 last time. It had a very positive thought. It was talking about the destruction of the entire world just prior to this and how Christ is going to have to do it to humble it and make it be as a little child. Until the world is humbled, it will not listen. You go out and try to preach God's word to people today. They scoff at you. They laugh. They think you're nuts. Shut up. Leave me alone. They will have to be humbled mightily before they will be teachable, before they will be pliant as clay and able to be molded and made into the image of God. You can't be too soft, or you can't be molded. You know you. You try to shape it, and it goes poop, and you try to shape it, and it goes poop again. So you've got to have a certain amount of rigidity and strength, and yet at the same time, you can't be so stiff that you cannot be bent and molded and made in the shape that is required. Not to re-preach the sermonette entirely, but that's what God is simply going to have to do. And he has promised safety and protection for those who will follow him, who will obey him, and who will yield to his way and his word, and they are to enter their chambers and shut the door and hide from the tempest and the storm and the trouble that is to come into verse twenty six. So let's pick it up then in verse in chapter twenty-seven. In that day, when it's time to go hide and have God's protection for the obedient. He's going to turn loose a lot of trouble. And that day the Eternal with his sword and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. The sea, again, is symbolic in the Bible and the prophecies of many, many people. And I think certainly that the Leviathan here, the crooked serpent, is speaking of Satan and he also calls him the dragon which Satan is called in other places so God is going to take care of the dragon now he's not going to kill Satan because it was read to us this morning that he will be put in the lake of fire and there he will be tormented forever not that flames can bother him but the very fact that he is in solitude solitary confinement and has nothing pleasant about him will be torture enough. What God is saying is I'm going to knock down, destroy everything satanic on this earth. And who is the one that really gets or who gets the punishment? People, for the most part, who have gone Satan's way. Now it is comforting to understand the, all these people that are going to die in the end-time wars and the seven last plagues, the Great Tribulation, everything that's coming, are going to be resurrected and have an opportunity at salvation. Now that's what this day really picks, our pictures, and perhaps, even though it was reviewed this morning, we need to understand, God is not unmerciful. God is a father, and he is going to have children, and God is not going to be a futile father, he will have many olive plants about his table. Now, Romans 11 makes it very clear that God has concluded all Israel in unbelief, that they might be deceived, and therefore He can show mercy because they have been deceived. So Satan deceiving the world, and He has deceived the whole world. Revelation 12:9 9, or 9:12 9, says. He deceived the whole world, but God is going to hold it to his account, not to the deceived people's account. God has a wonderful plan of salvation that the Protestants simply do not understand, so they're out trying to save the world, thinking Satan's winning. And that's not what's going on at all. God has allowed the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this present world to deceive the world, that he might save them later when they come up in a resurrection so you and me when we see dead bodies splatter all over the pavement in Iraq or Vietnam or whatever you are you want to name it looks pretty funny doesn't it and yet God who created mankind can pull those bodies together and give them life and breath again and give them an opportunity once they have been humbled to learn salvation and learn his way and ultimately to be saved So, as dire as this might seem, and as much as we might want to escape it, God has an answer for all those people. Now, you and I don't fit that category, because since we've been called now, this is our day of salvation. This is our only chance. No one gets but one chance. These people who have been deceived have not had a chance because they have been deceived and therefore could not react properly. But you and I have had the deception removed. God has called us now, and this is our one opportunity for eternal life to live in the kingdom of God. The wages of sin is death, not reincarnation, as satanic religions would tell you. After that, the resurrection. So God says he's going to take a hand at Satan's world and he's going to slay everything that Satan has done. Verse 2, In that day sing you to her a vineyard of red wine. Now he changes subject here and he's talking about his people again. Sing to her a vineyard of red wine. Out of a vineyard comes grape juice and red wine. It is a symbol of wealth. It is a symbol of a vineyard well cared for. Now remember Isaiah 5 where God said he was very upset with his vineyard and he would strip away the hedges and knock down the the tower, the watch, and allow it to be taken. Here he is saying just the opposite. I, the Lord, do keep it. He keeps his vineyard now. There's been a change here. I will water it every moment. It will not be out of his sight. He will take very good care of it. Lest any hurt it, I will keep it night and day. Now this is very positive and encouraging after he said he was going to strip it away and let it go to nothing. That's what has happened to the church. Because of unrighteousness, God took all wealth away, basically, and is still in the process. And he's knocking it flat till not one stone is left upon another but he's going to turn it around. For those who are faithful and remain faithful he's going to keep us, he will water us every moment and he'll keep an eye on us day and night. He says, Fury is not in me, who would set the briars and thorns against, or who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle. But who, Who is going to try to damage my vineyard once I start protecting it. I would go through them, I would burn them together. Anyone who tries to do anything against his people, once he returns his blessing to them, he is going to take care of. Or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. So God, even those, even those enemies, God says, if they want to make peace, I'll make peace. But if not, Watch out. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the whole world with fruit. Of well, the face of the world, not the whole world. I don't know why I threw that in. But Jacob is again going to blossom and flower and produce. We're not now, be it church or be a physical nation of Israel. We're producing the, fruit, the work of the flesh, works of the flesh, not the fruit of the spirit. Look at our society. Has he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? In measure, when it shoots forth, you will debate with it, he stays his rough wind in the day of the East Wind. This is very poorly translated in the King James. Uh, he, he's talking here about having just blown us away Is the east wind? Uh, the living bible makes it a little clearer I'm not going to drag it out and read it all but uh, God has taken away the strength he's taken away the wealth he's taken away everything by this therefore shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged obviously the, the object here is to get rid of iniquity to get rid of the sin so God blows away as the east wind and this is all the fruit to take away his sin makes it very clear that everything God is doing to us right now he is doing to get rid of sin we need to be in a mode of thinking of overcoming growing and getting rid of sin because that's God's object and if we're going to be pleasing God then that's what we're going to be doing, is getting rid of error, wrong, bad thinking, wrong spirit, wrong attitude, everything which is sin, we should be getting rid of. And if that's his goal and purpose, he won't be satisfied until it's accomplished, will he? That's the way God is. He finishes things. So his idea is to take away sin when he makes all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in thunder, the groves' images shall not stand up. Whatever idols we have made for ourselves, he's going to beat down, they won't be like we had made great pillars of granite anymore. To him they'll be like chalk. Chalk is very uh, easy to break. Hard not to break. But granite will be to him as chalk. And he's going to knock down all of our groves and images. We make all kinds of idols to ourselves, self being the biggest idol, putting ourselves ahead of God, putting our comforts, our needs, our desires ahead of others, whereas we're supposed to be loving our neighbor as ourselves. Verse 10, Yet the defense city shall be desolate, those who wall themselves in and fence themselves about and think they're safe and protected whether it be spiritual walls we build around ourselves saying I'm doing okay I'm fine I'm alright God will knock down that self-righteousness and the habitation will be forsaken and left like a wilderness there shall the cat feed and there shall he lie down and consume the branches thereof will so be, be made like a wilderness the church is being made like a wilderness and very shortly our nation will be made like a wilderness but there won't be plants being planted and agriculture going on The animals will simply graze and browse where they can find something and they'll consume the branches. Now, if you use the analogy of a tree as the church or as the nation, the branches are all consumed off it. It doesn't leave much, does it? When the boughs thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for as a people of no understanding. So once he destroys the tree, it dies, and then women will come and break the dry branches off and burn them in a fire. That's what our nation is going to look like. For it is a people of no understanding.
1: Therefore he that made
0: them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show them no favor. Even God who made us requires certain conduct. He requires accountability. He made us to live a certain way, like he lives. The way of life is described in the Bible. And anyone who is not willing to live according to God's ways is one to be cut off with and branch and burned up. God will not show favor unless we are a goodly vine unless we do what we're supposed to do. Now, he does say again in Romans eleven twenty-six, I believe it's 26, all Israel shall be saved.
1: So what that means
0: is he's going to cut them off physically until the thousand years is finished. And then they will be resurrected to physical life, be taught the truth, and have an opportunity to choose the right way. If they choose God's way, then they will be saved. Verse 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that the eternal shall beat off from the channel of the river under the stream of Egypt. Now, the river in prophecy generally refers to the Euphrates. Uh, the Assyrian who comes against us, our enemies, will be beat off of us from the Euphrates to the Nile. In other words, All the area that Israel occupied during that time equates to all the area that we are in today. And the Assyrian will be beat off of Israel throughout all her places, in other words. And you shall be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. But he's going to gather his people together, both the remnant first of the church and then later the remnant of Israel that remains. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown. I would assume that's the last trump in the context here. And they shall come when they were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt. Uh, The last trump is when the first resurrection occurs, and that may be a call to the rest of the world to begin to wake up. Now, I doubt he will begin to gather them, actually, until a year later. So maybe the great trumpet here isn't that last trump. But at a time when Christ comes back to the earth to put down all kingdoms and set up his kingdom, a great trumpet will be blown that will be the signal to begin gathering all of those people who have survived the great tribulation and the seven last plagues. Now he he, uh, pronounces some more woe. It's interesting when you read through this whole book, He'll pronounce woe, and then he'll give you some hope and inspiration and encouragement and promise of safety, and then he goes back and starts talking woe again. Well, what he wants us to do is go through this, understand what we are, what must be done, give us a little encouragement, and then smack us alongside the head a little more, and give us some encouragement, and then smack us alongside the head a little more, and this pattern will be seen all the way through this book late latest chapter 65 and 66 is still going on. It's not like it proceeds from, you've done badly, now straighten up, now you're blessed, you know, in one story flow. It keeps going back and forth. 28, romps a little more. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. He said, you've been wealthy, you've had these valleys, but you're so busy drunk on your own pride and drunk on wine that you're not paying attention to me. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, which is a tempest of hail and a destroying storm as the flood of mighty waters overflowing shall cast down to the earth with the hand. God has someone ready to punish our peoples. We saw earlier that the Assyrian is the rod of his anger and the world conspiracy that is going on today. There are a lot of people who hate America and they are going to conspire together to destroy us and God is going to allow it. Verse 3, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden under feet. Interesting that we so many times have our little flags and bumper stickers, proud to be an American. American pride. God hates pride. Even with his own son who lived a perfect life, he didn't say, my boy, I'm sure proud of you. He said, No, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. There is no room for any kind of pride anywhere. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet, and the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower, and is the hasty fruit before the summer. Which when he that looks upon it sees, while it is yet in his hand, he eats it up. So the Assyrians and the, the conspiracy, the confederacy, or to use a modern term, the coalition against America, is going to come in and pick us like a piece of ripe fruit and eat us. And that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty under the residue of his people. Now here is a change again. We're going to be eaten up. But then he says there's going to be a residue that God is going to bless. There is always this. This is a reoccurring theme that goes through from one end of this to the other. So he'll be a crown of glory to the residues of his people. And for a spirit of judgment to him that sits in judgment and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. Or put better put, those who endure to the end or battle at the gate to the very last is what the force of that is in a better translation. Those who are still in there fighting away when we come to the end of this thing. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine They are out of the way. Now God's way of life is spoken of as the way. Paul and the others spoke of the way of life. But because of wrong emphasis, wrong focus, wrong practices, drunkenness, they've gone out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision, they stumble in judgment. Wine is symbolic of wealth again, and when you consider spiritual wealth, you find in Revelation three, those who think they are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, full of wine, a wealth of strong drink, a wealth of good doctrine. A little way of putting this might be, this is kind of my paraphrase. The priests and the prophets are having a wild time with doctrine, blind symbolizing doctrine doctrine among other things, and don't we see some really strange doctrine being promulgated today? For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. Remember Haggai 2.11? I think I'll flip back here and read that one, because it ties this together very well with the work of the witnesses at the end, and the end-time church, not just that of the witnesses, but the whole work is a witness against the world, including not only the two, but the rest of the church. Haggai 2, verse 11, Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread, or pottage, or wine, or oil, or any meat, shall it be holy?" And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says Eternal, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. God has not been happy with what has been offered, and he says it is unclean. The priests, the prophets have not made a difference between the clean and the unclean. That is one of the main focuses we have in this little group is to determine what is clean and what is unclean in every aspect of life. Notice Malachi 1. Just over a few pages to Malachi. In the verse 6, O priests that despise my name, and you say, wherein have we despised your name? You offer polluted bread upon my altar. Bad teaching, bad practice. In that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. In other words, by the things you teach and preach, you're showing contempt to the altar of God. Now, didn't all the Old Testament requirements uh, tell you to offer that which was perfect, without blemish, without spot, without injury. God wanted the best offered to him. But we're not given the best. Well there's the standard. We have to give that which is the best. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or accept your person, says the Lord of hosts? He says, even men don't want you to bring sick, lame, wretched things to them. Why do you do it to me? Do we give the best of our time and energy to our brethren and to God? Or just sort of what's left over? Verse 12. You have profaned in that you say the table of the Lord is polluted and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. And God says it is a weariness to him. So we must be very careful not to lay the unclean, the polluted, on God's altar. He wants us to bring the very best. When we come before him, we should bring our best prayer, we should bring our best thoughts. When we come to him, like say here, we should wear our best clothing, for that matter. When we think of God, we need to think of high standards, because he requires high standards. He is not pleased with average or poor. He even calls the weak and base, but he says, don't stay that way. Go on to maturity. You don't have to always be weak and base. Don't come to have yourself pigeonholed in weak in base and stay that way. We must become mighty and noble. We must become kings and priests with Christ in the millennium. Maybe we were weak and base. Let's call ourselves trailer crash to start. Okay? Well, we're supposed to move in the palace with God. So don't justify what we are by saying, this is what God called, or as the Protestant songs go, take me as I am, Lord. He don't want you as you am he wants you changed converted grown up mature (laughs) I would hate for him to come back and say "Ah, you're my son and you still look like trailer trash to me I would rather he would say, You're my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now we have a long ways to go, I think. He called Christ that. And aren't we supposed to become like Christ? To be like him in every way, to think like him, walk with it as he walked? First John two six, walk as he walked, do as he did, be as he was. It's not vanity to try to be like Christ it's not sacrilege or blasphemy to try to be like Christ but they told Christ it was blasphemy for him to be like the Father no it's not God created us in his image and what did we do immediately we took a dive now we're supposed to be coming up from that and being in his image what happened there in the Garden of Eden was an incredible travesty but our ancestor chose the wrong way, and we have been in a battle ever since to get back to where we should be, to be like God. Verse 9, Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand teaching or doctrine? Then that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast? When well, you're just a child, just weaned, is that the time to learn knowledge? Let's go back to Hebrews 5 for a moment. Hebrews 5. Verse 11, speaking of Christ, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing, or when for the time you ought to be teachers, need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the words of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We're supposed to be maturing so that we can tell good from evil not be like a babe on milk who really doesn't know one from the other. There should not be a chapter break here. It just says, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, which we're gone through in a at recently, the very basic doctrines, not forgetting is a better translation. Not leaving those things, therefore not forgetting those things, let's move on to maturity. A baby gets off milk, gets on meat, begins to grow and ultimately reaches maturity. That's what God wants of us, not to stay babies forever. We should have an attitude to be teachable like a little child. There are so many attitudes today, nobody can to tell me what to do. That's just whose opinion. Is that a teachable little child attitude? Not on your life. And you're betting your life on your attitude, aren't you? He goes on here in verse 10. For precept has been upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, or has he spoken to this people, better said. As they said in Romans 11, God has concluded them in unbelief and in deception. So they could be taken, snared, and deceived, and not lose out on salvation today, but be resurrected in a humble context and be given a chance at salvation at that time. So most people, when they read the Bible, think, man, what language is this in? Or, to use a common expression, looks like Greek to me. A lot of people have picked the Bible up and started reading it and tried to make heads or tails or sense out of it. And they read and they get confused because it doesn't make any sense to them. And the reason is that God has written the Bible in such a way that you have to take some here, some there, and put the whole story together. And it simply cannot be done without His Spirit to lead and guide that process. Therefore, people can read the whole Bible, read it through, Scratch their heads and say, what was that all about? Because they don't get the picture of God's plan and what he's doing. They don't know what is to be done and what is not to be done. God did that on purpose. He wrote it this way, to whom he said in verse 12, this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. His word has a lot of peace and rest in it if you understand it and follow it. That's what he gave it for. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Did they not despise Moses? Did they not stone all the prophets? Did they not turn away from anyone who told them the truth? They always have. Is it any different today? Not at all. People want to do what they want to do, and they simply, in many cases, will not be told what to do by God himself through this word. But the word of the eternal was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. God has written the Bible the way it is written on purpose so that they would not understand. Now, how is it the Protestants turn it around and say, and I I remember from just being a little bitty kid in the Methodist church, I remember old Horace Brooks telling us that Jesus spoke in parables to make the understanding simple so that even a little child could understand the parables. And yet scripture itself says, I spoke in parables so that they could not understand. Now that's what Jesus said. Horace didn't have it straight. We didn't stay in the Methodist church very long either. But he's written it this way in mercy. But his people have to dig out the story. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. What should the church right now, brethren, be doing as a whole? It should be digging in this book, this line, that line, this precept, that precept, here a little, there a little, finding God's will. That's what we ought to be doing. But what are the churches the organizations for the most part doing. They're going on with the same old party line that we always had, preaching the same old basic doctrines, not learning anything, not growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, not continuing to grow, but just marking time going on with that which God was not pleased with to start with and blew apart. We've got to dig out God's will and purpose. And we will not be protected under this line-upon-line thought because we have been given His Spirit. We have been given our opportunity of salvation now And he has given us his spirit to help us dig his meaning out line by line, precept by precept. The same word that they were deceived by, we have to be able to put together. That's why we can flip back to Hebrews 5 and 6 and tie it in right here. It's why Paul could constantly go back and say what Isaiah had said, or what the psalmist had said, or what Obadiah or someone had said. He would pull those things into his sermons to show how the principle worked in the New Testament of that which was in the Old. Here a little, there a little. Verse 15. Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come to us, for if we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Now how do you paraphrase that in modern language? We think we know all the answers.
1: We know that
0: when the Assyrian and the conspiracy, the coalition against America comes through, it will not bother us because we have it all figured out and everything will be okay. That's what this is saying. We have all the answers. We don't need anything. That is a lay of sin attitude, and one which God will not put up with. Or maybe I should say that better grammatically. That is a lay of sin attitude, which God. What was I trying to say? I thought it was very clever. <laughs> what happens when I try to be clever up with which he will not put or something like that I had in mind so I didn't end with a preposition but what difference does that make? Let's go on with what God says. So they have come up with excuses, lies really to cover what they're doing that does not fit this word. Verse 16, therefore thus says eternal God Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste, or not be worried and be hasty. He knows if he follows that foundation stone, he'll be okay. Of course, Ephesians 2 tells us Christ is the chief cornerstone. That's the cornerstone that everything is built upon. He says, Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet." Now how is he going to do that? Well, he says he gives Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses, the, the, plumb, the plumb line and the rod of righteousness. And they will measure the church. He tells them to measure the altar and then to the worship therein and Revelations 11 or Revelation 11 1 through 2. It is their job to check it out and see if it fits the tried stone, the precious corner, the sure foundation or not. Is the church in line with Jesus Christ? That's the goal and the purpose and the job. So he's going to give a plumb line and a rod of righteousness he says, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. In other words, the, set, the foundation that you are building has to be on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And if you don't lay it on a sure foundation, it will be swept away. Remember Christ's instruction about not lay, building your foundation upon sand, lest the water come and wash it all away? It won't if it doesn't stand up in comparison with Christ, it won't last. It won't work. Can't be. It's going to sweep away the refuge of lies. The wrong things that people are hiding behind will be taken away. And what we really are and what we really believe and what we really do will be revealed. And if it doesn't match up to Jesus Christ, it'll be washed away. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with the grave shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then shall you be trodden down by it. The overflowing scourge is the coalition against America, the new world order destroying us from the time that it goes forth it shall take you for morning by morning shall it pass over by day and by night if you had an enemy invasion force in this country and it just kept coming in waves and went on and on killing, destroying taking people into captivity pinning them up in some of these pins that they're building around our country right now and this went on for three and a half years and you were out there in it wouldn't it just come as a wave every day every day living in absolute danger and horror of destruction and it should be a vexation only to understand the report will we ever get the point will we ever understand the report of what is going to happen to this people it's already happening to the church can't we look around and say, well, the nation must be next? And know oh for surety that that is coming because that's what this book says. As surely as the church has been scattered because of Laodiceanism, this nation is going to be scattered and taken captive because of our morals, because of our culture and our society and our lack of attention to the almighty God who gave us this land as a result of the promise to Abraham. It will be taken away from us. Isaiah 53.1, Who has believed our report? We'll get there eventually, but here is a preview of that. For the bed is shorter than a man can stretch himself on it. It's going to be a very uncomfortable time. Have you ever slept on a bed that was too short and you hung over both ends, I see a couple of smiles with some of the taller guys, especially. I slept on in, a, in places where there just wasn't enough room. A pickup seat, even, is shorter than I am, and you curl up and you get your you know you're in a fetal position this way, and then you turn over and your knees hit the seat and your nose smashes against it, and you're uncomfortable. You can't really stretch out. The whole world, and this nation in particular, is going to be very uncomfortable for three and a half years. And the covering narrower than he than that he can wrap himself in. combination of two things. The bed's too short, and the blanket's too narrow. And you pull the blanket over to warm your front, and your back gets cold, and you turn over and pull it this way, and you, you just get cold all over, and you're miserable all night long. We've all been there. You ever hear of a bed hog, hover hog, kids sleeping together? Give me some blanket. And they pull away from each other, back and forth. Some wives have the problem. You know, hubby has hold of the blanket, and he turns all of it over, and she's got that much left. God says this nation is going to be like that during this period of time. For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim, he shall be wrathful as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. Now isn't it a strange act to have your own people that you consider considered the apple of your eye, and you devastate them, destroy all but a remnant? That's a strange and unusual thing, isn't it? What if you have ten children, and you decided, well, let's see, in order to... Make this thing right, I think I'll kill nine. That would be a strange, unusual act. You'd go to jail for that. I'd even have the injection for that. It's a strange sounding thing. God has the power to resurrect, doesn't he? So he's doing it, really, for the na- national good. And when he resurrects, they'll be humble and ready to listen, and then they can have salvation. And it may also have preference, not only to the strange thing of destroying so that he might save, but also the mystery of God, that we're to become God. That's a strange and unusual sounding thing. Tell people in any of the religions of this world
1: that our goal in life
0: is to become God, and most of them will think you're blaspheming. But doesn't kind beget kind? God begets his own kind. He made us in his likeness, in his image. And he told us we could live forever, be the bride of Christ. Is Christ going to marry something lesser than himself? Well, perhaps it's a little lesser, or lesser in glory. He'll always be the husband and always be in charge. But his bride has to be of like kind. Well, that's strange to the ears of this world. Now, therefore, be you not mockers, lest your hands be made strong, lest you get tied up and can't get loose. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a consumption even determined upon the whole earth. Isaiah says, You better be careful, you better pay attention, because God has told me there's going to be a consumption on the whole earth. Give you ear. And hear my voice. Hearken and hear my speech. I'm going to pick up the living here. I said it here. This next section is really poorly written in the King James and hard to understand beginning in verse 24. I want to read it to you out of the Living Bible. Uh, He says, Listen to me. Listen as I plead. Does a farmer always plow and never sow? Is he forever harrowing the soil and never planting it? Does he not finally plant his many kinds of grain, each in its own section of his land? He knows just what to do, for God has made him see and understand. He doesn't thresh all grains the same. A sledge is never used on dill, but it is beaten with a stick. A threshing wheel is never rolled on cumin, but it is beaten softly with a flail. Bread grain is easily crushed, so he doesn't keep on pounding it. The Lord of hosts is a wonderful teacher and gives the farmer wisdom. So he says God will instruct and give discretion. He does everything in a proper way, a proper order. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he will take care of us. Verse 29, again in the King James, this also comes forth from the eternal of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. Who gives encouragement again. God knows exactly what he's doing with us. If he puts us through trials, through trouble, through afflictions, which he said all Christians will have, he knows exactly what he's doing and why. Because he knows what we need to get our attention. The book of Ecclesiastes says, time and chance happens to them all. But Ecclesiastes is written from the standpoint of normal human life without God being involved. And truly, time and chance happens to all these people out here in this world. But I do not believe time and chance happens to you and me. We are the called of God. Our hairs are numbered. He knows everything that is going on in our lives. If something happens to us, there is a message there. Look for it. Find it. Think it through. Why did God let this happen to me? Why didn't he prevent it? He could have. He could have. But he allowed it to happen when things that are adverse happen to us we need to keep some scriptures in mind many are the afflictions of the righteous but God will deliver him out of them all but he allows those afflictions to occur to teach us something through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God the tribulation we have is allowed to come upon us that we might learn the lessons we need to learn you don't have auto accidents like the world does. If you get a fender bender or a rollover or something, God wanted you to learn something from that. So think about it. <clears throat> Alright, let's go to chapter 29. We'll Old to Ariel, to Ariel the city where David dwelt. Ariel is another name for Jerusalem. He says, add you year to year, let them kill sacrifices, or better translated, let the feast cycle come round year after year. The cycle continues. We keep doing the feast cycle year after year, rehearsing God's plan, going through the motions. Put our heart in it. That is the key question to God. People will say, didn't I keep your Sabbath? Didn't I go to the feast? Well, yeah. Didn't all those Laodiceans go to the feast? Yes, they did. Didn't they keep the Sabbath? Yes, they did. But God is not pleased. There has to be something more to please God. Going through the motions of the feast every year is not enough. He says, you've been going through the motions year after year, letting the feast cycle happen, yet I will distress Ariel or Jerusalem, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. And I will or He says, sorrow and heaviness is the same as Ariel, and Ariel is the same as heaviness. You can't tell the difference between the two. And I will camp against you round about and will lay seeds against you with a mount and I will raise courts against you. God says, I am going to be your enemy. I am the one who's going to tear you down. God is the one that has done this to the church. He may have used the devil to do the dirty work, but he's the one behind it. And you shall be brought down and shall speak out of the ground and your speech shall be low out of the dust. That's pretty flat, isn't it? You hear someone talking, and you're not up there, right down here in the dirt. That's where the voice comes from. And your voice shall be as one that has a familiar spirit. I've heard demons talk, and it is often a very garbled, hard-to-understand experience. They don't make a lot of sense and they make some strange noises. And don't get curious, you don't want to hear. Out of the ground and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. But, in spite of all this, he picks it up again in verse 5, Moreover, the multitude of your strangers, or invaders, shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones the ones who come to invade us uh, shall be as chaff that passes away. Yeah, shall be at an, Yes, it shall be at an instant suddenly. But God is going to come in. He's going to punish. He's going to destroy. And then he's going to take away the destruction. The tearing down is going to stop. And it's going to stop suddenly. There is another verse, which we will get to in this book. I'm not going there now. Which says he will bless in one day that in one day our sins will be forgiven and he will turn and smile and bless us. So it is with exact timing that God is going to turn this thing around. You shall be visited of the eternal Host with thunder and with earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Jerusalem even all that fight against her and her munitions and that distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. In other words, you wake up and it's all gone. You thought you were in deep, deep trouble, and then suddenly you wake up and say, Oh, man, good, it was just a dream. That's how quickly it's all going to end. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he eats, but he awakes, and his soul is empty. (laughs) Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he drinks, but he awakes, and behold, he is faint, and his soul has appetite. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Zion. They're going to think they're filled with victory, and it's going to wake up empty and hollow. Now to us, it'll be like a bad dream. We'll wake up and it's over. To them, it'll be like they were all filled, but they're going to wake up empty. So everyone who comes against Mount Zion is going to wind up like that. Verse 9, stay yourselves and wonder, cry you out and cry.
1: They are drunk,
0: but not with wine, they stagger, but not with strong drink. For the eternal has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers, has he covered. For the staggering that we are doing is not necessarily because of drunkenness, but because God has blinded the eyes and it's like we're sleepwalking. There's not a whole lot of difference between a drunk and a sleepwalker, is there? All kind of stumbling about, not knowing what they're doing. Sleepwalkers do some strange things. I knew one kid one time, He'd get up, he was so deep asleep, he'd wander around a while and finally go in the closet thinking it was the bathroom. That's enough of the story, you can figure the rest out. God has closed your eyes, says the, the ministry, the rulers, covered their eyes so they can't see what's going on. Where do you hear? These messages that Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the prophets lay out being preached today, you don't hear much of it, I'll guarantee you that. There might be some little pockets here and there through the church where you'll hear it. But not much, because most simply can't see. And the vision of all has become to you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver one that is learned and say, Read this, I pray you. And he says, I can't read it. It's sealed. I don't understand it. Or like I quoted recently, one minister I heard of in one of the organizations was asked, why don't you teach prophecy? And he said, I will as soon as they tell me what I believe. About the same thing it's saying right here, isn't it?
1: I don't know. I can't read it. I don't
0: understand it. Wherefore the Eternal said, For as much as his people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work in a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. In other words, God says, I'm going to take away all understanding. Now, what is the reason for this? because of what he said at the beginning of the chapter. We're going through the motions, going through the feast cycle year after year, keeping the Sabbath, but our heart isn't in it. And he said over and over and over again, seek me with your whole heart, and when you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. That is the theme that is echoed over and over and over again. That is the biggest problem with the people of God today. They're going through the motions, doing lip service, coming to the feast, but not really worshiping God with their heart, but doing whatever it is that pleases them. That's the problem. The focus is gone. God lays it out very clearly here. They honor me with their lips. They go through the feast cycle, but their heart isn't in it. Oh, that there were such an heart in them, he says. Therefore, he says, I'm taking their understanding away. Most of them have no idea what's going on and why. God takes it away if you don't have your heart in it. Out of the abundance of the lips Or out of the abundance of the heart Excuse me The lips speak What do we talk about? What do we have on our minds? Are we talking to God? Are we praying to God? Are we reading his word? Is that what we talk about? Or do we have other things on our minds? How does he hate our feasts? because we come there and we have something else on our minds. We don't have putting him first in our lives in our hearts and minds and therefore he takes away understanding. Woe to them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the eternal, verse 15, and their works are in the dark and they say, Who sees us and who knows us? God isn't looking. God doesn't care. He doesn't mind if I do this. Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or do you think you're brighter than the one who made you? If well, he starts molding that kind of clay pot, and it has that kind of attitude, he's going to pick it up and turn it upside down and smash it into. Not a work of art anymore, but just a lump of clay. I mean, don't we need to look around and say, who made me? My body is fearfully and wonderfully made. The fact that the nervous system and the muscular system and the digestive system and all these systems work together are an incredible work of art that God has put together. The fact that a human Body works! Reproductive systems, everything works! Isn't that incredible? And then then man says, ah, there's no God. We just evolved. That stretches any thinking person's credulity, I would think, to the breaking point. Did this just come together? It's ridiculous! Had to be made, had to be designed, had to be thought out, and then had to be executed. Have you ever seen a clay pot just sort of appear out of dust on your nightstand? It was all that dust there that you hadn't cleaned off. And amazingly, it just turned into a pot. Incredible. Stupid. So or shall the thing frame say of him that framed it he had no understanding as intricately and as wonderfully as the human body is made do we look at it and say there was no understanding involved here (laughs) man he must have understood something about electrical circuits for me to be able to think in my pole wiggle he got the circuits right didn't he The point he's making is shouldn't we pay attention to somebody that could do that? Is it not yet a very little while and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest? God is going to cause things to grow back after he destroys them. And it's just a little while until this turnaround comes. When we read this here in the end time, it's only a little while till this turnaround begins. And anyone who's not paying attention and doesn't have his heart in it is going to be left behind and not go into the chambers and shut the doors and be left in the tribulation. And that includes 90% of the church. And in that day, verse 18, shall the deaf hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. All of a sudden the Bible's going to open up and all these things they read about and sort of gave lip service to and sort of went through the cycle with are suddenly going to come real. Oh no, this is really happening, isn't it? Well duh. Where was our heart? Where was our head? The meek also shall increase their joy in the eternal, and the poor among them shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Doesn't he say he's going to save for himself a poor and meek and humble people? Not the proud, not the vain. He resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. For the terrible one is brought to nothing, and the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off. that make a man an offender for a word, and lay a snare for him that reproves in the gate, and turn aside the just for a thing of nothing. We'll get put down for bringing the message. The message that I am preaching to you today, straight out of the book of Isaiah, and I don't think I'm throwing my opinions in here, I'm just reading it, letting the chips fall, expounding it, making it a little clearer perhaps, But this is going to happen. And you know what? Most people in the church today,
1: if they heard this
0: tape, would scoff and say that's ridiculous. God isn't going to let 90% of us go into the tribulation. Our group's going to a place of safety because we're the Philadelphians. They make a man an offender for a word, for speaking the word. But they always have, so it shouldn't be any surprise. Verse 22, Therefore, thus says the Eternal who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in the midst of him, They shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. When we see all these things begin to happen and our children begin to wake up and say, Man, there must be something to this after all. Why was I so despiteful of my parents' religion? Why did I diss it and go for the glitterati of the world? Why did I cast it aside? We're going to see our children come around because all these things I'm telling you about today are going to happen, brethren. And our kids are going to say, Wow! We're going to see it. They also that erred in spirit, that is in attitude, shall come to understanding those who laughed and mocked and scorned the word of God and went through the motions, feast after feast, year after year, kept the Sabbath, Week after week, but didn't have their heart in it, and who became blind, are going to begin to truly wake up when God begins to do these things that he says he will do. Those that erred in spirit and attitude shall come to understanding. Doesn't John 4.24 tell us we must worship in spirit and in truth? That's what we will come to. He has erred in spirit, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine or truth. Finally, the spirit will be right, the knowledge will be correct, and finally, we will be worshiping in spirit and in truth. That's what God is looking for. When he says, worship me with your heart, he wants your whole spirit and attitude to be involved with him. He is central in your life. He is everything to you. Everything else is satellite to that, husband, wife, family, children, material things are all satellite and should revolve around your emphasis on God. He wants your whole heart, He wants your whole spirit, and He wants you to worship Him in truth. Well, I'm within three minutes of time to be done, so I'm going to stop there, and it does close there on a very positive note. But Jacob will hear. Jacob will understand. And some of us will wake up. So drive safely as you go home or as you fly. People tell you, well, have a safe trip when you get on a plane. What do you have to do with it? I guess you pray ahead of time that God will get it up and down safely. But you don't have a lot to do with it. Now, driving's a little different matter. You might have something to do with it if you're sleeping at the wheel or driving too long hours or whatever. So be alert, be awake. Be alert spiritually and awake throughout this coming time we have. Six months till Passover. So be alert and awake. And be alert and awake on the way home. And Thank you for being here. Thank you for being willing to listen to what God says because most don't simply want to hear it and they will laugh and scoff. I know it's a hard message I know it's difficult but we've got to have a vision of where we're going and we've certainly got to understand what it's going to take to get there and we've got to give our whole heart to God in worship and worship in spirit and the truth so I think that's a good parting thought for the end of the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day so
1: go with God.